We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Second Kings in chapter 1 and verse 19. Now you might wonder from that text, what in the world? Is it because, Tommy, you turned 72 this week? You got a text on bald heads or something like that? Well, just hang on right here. Stay with me. Uh, your Old Testament is divided into three parts. There is the first five books, that's the law of Moses, and they comprise the beginnings of Israel's history. And then as they came out of Egypt, the law of God they were given so that they could enjoy their unique relationship to God through the Abrahamic choice and covenant. You dig? That's the first five books. And then you have from uh, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. That's what's called the history of the chosen people. And that's their failure to keep the first five books. And you see them rise and fall and ultimately sent into captivity. And thereafter, the law and then the uh, litmus test of the writings, their history, that you see the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, and uh, they look at the, the failure of Israel and of God speaking into that failure. And the, all of the prophets comprise about four things. God will identify the nation's sin. And then secondly, he will call the nation to repent. And he will tell them what repentance looks like. And then thirdly, there will be a warning. If you don't, here come the Syrians, the, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans. They're coming if you don't do this. In the book of Joel, the locusts are coming if you don't do this. And then each prophet will end with hope. And the hope won't be that Israel will someday be obedient. It's that there's someone coming who will be, and that is the Messiah. And so the law, the writings, and the prophets. Now, the prophetic order began, it, it is signified by one man. Now, who would you think it might be? Well, Isaiah. No, uh, Peter speaks of Samuel and the prophets. No, there were a lot of prophets before this guy, but God designates this man. This is the beginning of the prophetic order. He represents it. Whenever Jesus was at the transfiguration, two people appear to him that are looking forward to his coming. One is Moses and the law, and the other is a prophet, Elijah. Elijah. It's Elijah. He is the guy that is seen as the prophet. Uh, at the, it's interesting because at the end of the Old Testament, uh, Israel has not kept the law. They have ne they're just surviving captivity. They've come back from it. And God says, the next voice you're going to hear is the end and the capstone of all the Old Testament prophets looking forward to Messiah. And it's going to be Elijah. And of course, it was not literally Elijah, as Gabriel said to the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He, he, and so it's like the prophets begin with Elijah, they end with Elijah, John the Baptist, who says of Jesus, 
Behold, the Lamb of God. He must increase, I must decrease, and the law fades away to the fullness of Christ. Are you with me? Okay. And so, Elijah came at the most difficult of times. You had, after the split of the north Israel from the south of our guy, uh, after Solomon's reign, God did that to Solomon because Solomon fell away into idols and God could not have the rest of the world looking at this great, great kingdom as if it came from other gods. And so he split them. And so uh, the northern kingdom split under a guy named Jeroboam, the south under a guy named Rehoboam. And uh, seven kings into the northern split, it just kept getting nastier and nastier and nastier. And uh, God would someday bring a guy named Jehu or Yehu who would wipe them like a dish and would kill everything that moved. If you made a movie on him, you would use, not Charlton Heston, you'd use like Sylvester Stallone, okay, would be Jehu. But before he came, God raised up a man named Elijah. Ahab was wicked and he married a wickeder woman whose name was Jezebel, who's named after the goddess Bel, the god Bel. Uh, and she did an ultimate cancel culture. If you were a prophet of God, she put you to death. Uh, she put in her own prophets. That's what happens when you got a husband that's a little wiener, you know, is that you can push your way. I think that's the Hebrew right there. You can push your way on him. Uh, and uh, she, she built a temple to Baal. And then she did the ultimate act of uh, impertinence is that she and Ahab re, uh, ordained the rebuilding of Jericho. When Jericho went down under Joshua, God made him take a, he gave him an oath you will not rebuild this city and look back to the Canaanites. If you do, you will lay the foundations with the death of your firstborn and you will finish the gates with the death of your youngest child. I will wipe you like a dish if you do it. And Jezebel and Ahab said, no, we're doing it. And they did it. They hired a guy named Heel the Bethelite and he laid the foundation and lost his first son and he put in the gates and he lost his last one. As Matthew Henry said, the threats of God are not bugabears. I don't even know what a bugabear is. But he said, God's not just woofing. When he makes an oath, you don't push him. And so he did. And so Ahab, Jezebel, Baal, the temple, the prophets. And then it would be like us having uh, a president that wanted to tear down Lexington and Concord and, you know, rebuild it to British glory or something like that. Well, making a very bold statement that this country was wrong in what they had done. Well, are you with me so far? Okay, I'm going somewhere. We're going to get to bald heads here in just a little bit. All right. And then at the height of this, here comes this torpedo. It is Elijah. He is withdrawn from the nation. 
Uh, he is east of the Jordan. He can't get a date because he's wearing camel hair and eating grasshoppers, okay, eating locusts. And so Elijah comes and he says, do you like fertility gods? I'll tell you what, it's not gonna rain until I say, I'm shutting off the spigot. Can God do that? To a country that is turned, I can turn the spigot off. There ain't gonna be no milk and there ain't gonna be no honey around here because I'm turning it off. And let's see how well your worship of nature does. And he did. Uh, and then we have a showdown. Elijah summons Ahab. We go to Mount Carmel, build altars. The God who answers with fire, he is God. The name Elijah means uh, the Lord is God. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord is God. And so uh, at Carmel, the fire falls. Elijah says, get those false prophets that are educating the nation in error and they destroy them. And then he takes off running 17 miles. That old man run says the hand of God was on him. Amen. He ran 17 miles and the, the remember that the uh, uh, thunder cloud broke and here comes rain. And he runs all the way to the, where Ahab and uh, Jezebel were living. They didn't attend the uh, fire coming down. And he ran there and to see if Ahab had repented. Because you gotta have it, you gotta have the king of Nineveh repent for Assyria to be spared. And so did the king repent? And if you remember, Jezebel looked out the window and said, may the gods do so to me if your head is on your shoulders at this time tomorrow. That's always a tip off that there's no repentance, okay? I'm gonna kill you. And Elijah, outside of his persona, fled into the wilderness and ultimately ended up at Sinai, the place where you saw earthquakes, wind and fire when God gave the law. And he goes to the God of law and God appears to him at Sinai. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, it's a great statement. Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars and I alone am left. You ever felt like that? I'm the only believer in the country. I alone am left. And God said, no. I've got 7,000 men that I've kept for myself that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know where they are, but I've got them. And then he is looking, Elijah is, for the judgment of God. God, would you judge this nation? You ever prayed that about America? To call down an airstrike on your own country? Because he knew that's the only thing that could help us is an airstrike. And so like a... We all think there's a guy that's a uh, Medal of Honor winner. He got the Medal of Honor because he called in an airstrike on himself. All right. Like Forrest Gump. Remember <laughs> Lieutenant Diane? <laughs> called that. Never mind. And so God all of a sudden comes to Elijah. There's an earthquake. And it says God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a tornado that ripped the rocks it says God was not in the 
wind. And then there was a fire broke out and it says God was not in the fire. He was looking for death and justice and God said, no, no, no. And then it says there was a gentle stillness and the word of God came. God's word would be mercy. It's been said that you look at the Old Testament and you see all the sin that's going. John the Baptist comes, he says, get ready. The ax is laid at the foot of the trees. You don't see earth, wind, and fire. What you see is the word, Jesus, in a gentle blowing. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. And so God says, I'm going to respond not with justice. I'm going to respond with mercy. Are you glad? Yeah, he responds with mercy. And uh, that mercy was going to be, Elijah was going to be caught away into glory and a guy would take his place, Elisha. And it's a trivia question. Who is the greatest miracle worker in the Old Testament? Ah, Moses. Nope, it is Elisha. He does more miracles. And all of his miracles are life-giving. Uh, Naaman, the uh, Syrian is restored from leprosy and this thing at Jericho where the water is made sweet, it's always love. Does this sound familiar? That sin, violation of law, the need of judgment, and God is not in it. That God gives his word. Does lightning strike that hill at Calvary? It sure does. God gives mercy. Well, Elisha is going to come and offer mercy. It's like a little parenthesis between judgment and judgment. God says, I'm going to send Elisha. Yeah. And then, I mean, I'm excited too. Yeah. And then uh, God says, now you go back and anoint uh, Hazael the, as the new king of Syria. I'm about to strike the nation someday as they reject this offer of mercy. I'm coming and I'm going to raise up a pagan to bring judgment on you. Hazael, who assassinates the king under him, being Hadad. Can God use a wicked man to judge wicked men? Yes, he can. I'm going to bring him. And then whoever escapes him, I'm, you go and anoint Jehu. Jehu was not a, uh, in any way a politician. He was a military man. And God said to him, I want the house of Ahab dead. Everyone dead. And so you're going to have 70 children of Ahab that are going to get killed, beheaded. And then we're going to put their heads in a basket uh, and put them at the gate. <laughs> okay. So we're going to deal with evil. Okay. Uh, Jehu is going to take the temple of Baal and destroy it. And then he's going to take all the worshipers of Baal, kill them in that place. And then I love this. He's going to turn it into a latrine. I'll leave it right there. How would you like a postcard of Jehu? All right. So we're going to turn it into a latrine. And then he says, whoever escapes Jehu, Elisha is going to deal with them. And so God judge him. No. I'm going to give them a time, a parenthesis between Elijah and Jehu. I'm going to give them a time of mercy.
Where else do you see this? Judgment, mercy, and then the tribulation and the second coming. Yeah, it's the pattern of God throughout the Bible. God is good. And so, uh, right here is where Elisha is going to begin his ministry. He begins it at Jericho. You see it in verse 19. The men of the city of Jericho said to Elisha, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees. The water is bad. The land is unfruitful. Jericho, I've been there. It was turned over to the Muslims. And so you can't get over to see it now, but I got to see it back in about 1987. I remember because I ate an Eskimo pie. Yeah. And so I was there at Jericho. And Jericho, when you come up to it, is a spring. As a matter of fact, it's simply called the City of the Palms. It's a spring that comes up. And there's like palm trees all around. It looks like, like Fort Lauderdale out in the middle of this desert. And you can see the possibly the oldest city in history. There are like nine different Jerichos built on top of each other. Because if you were in that land... If you came from the Tower of Babel and you went to that land, I'll assure you where you would build the city. You would build it with water. What's the key of building a city? Location, location, location. You're going to put it with a spring. And so there's like, I think it's nine different Jerichos are built up. And so when you look at the city, you say, the situation of the city is pleasant. It looks good. But... The water is bad, and the land is literally barren. Can that ever be true of a culture? That you can look at it and say, boy, that is really a great deal. But the fact is, it's dead. And so, this city was originally destroyed by Joshua. And God said, I want you to take no plunder of this city because this is a sacrifice to God, because this is a a holy war, that they're being removed like the Noahic flood removed the enemy. We're going to remove the Canaanite. And then uh, you have a warning by God. You rebuild, you try to go back, and you will die as no other city can die. You will die. And then you see that city cursed because Ahab tried to do it. And so now you come to it, and what used to be a national monument, they, Jericho continued off to the side. There were two Jerichos. There was old Jericho and new Jericho. Incidentally, it's kind of an interesting twist. Uh, Book of Hosea said that God, the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were like the first ripe fig. When you would see the fig tree blossom, you knew life had come. And God found them like the first ripe fig. Jesus came uh, to Jericho. And he looked at springtime for a first ripe fig. Actually, he came to, to Jerusalem. He looked for a first ripe fig. And the fig tree had leaves, but it had no figs. What did Jesus do? Cursed it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. That's what happened to Israel. But when he passed through Jericho, he went through old Jericho. He went through new Jericho, and there were two blind men that said, have mercy on us. When he was in old Jericho, 
there was a guy, a wee little man, a wee little man was he, and he climbed up in a sycamore fig tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior, that'll make a song out of this. And when the Savior passed that way, they looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. You know what Zakai means? It means the righteous one. Who was it? An IRS agent. Is there a God? Yes. And he looked up and they had just hired 48,000 of them. That's a fact. This was an old one. They looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. And there was a fig. It was a little bitty tax collector. And he said, I must eat at your house today. And Zacchaeus came down, started going to his house and realized everything he had in the house was stolen. And he said, Lord, uh, before we go in there, I need to tell you something. If I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'll give him back four times. And half I have, I'll give to the poor. And Jesus said, this is a son of Abraham. God came to Abraham like the first right fig. Can't find one. Yes, I can. It's an IRS agent. Aren't you glad? You don't even have to pay for that. All right. That's just, I forget where I am. Okay. And so Jericho, they attempted a cancel culture. We will get rid of the historic foundation of our country and we will have an official apology to the Canaanites that we have rejected them. The same thing's gonna happen with a guy named Gideon that before he goes to redeem Israel, uh, he says, uh, God says, I want you to go to your father's house and you're gonna find an altar to Baal in the backyard. I want you to pull it down and they pull it down. Later on, when Gideon dies, a guy takes over named Abimelech and he takes 70 sons of the wives of Gideon and puts them to death on one stone as an apology to Baal that we did this. Cancel culture. So what you're saying is old school. It's happened before. And so this spring is now cursed because he tried to go back and God says, you might think you can have a culture without me, but you can't. And so it looks good, but it's dead. Well, if you'll keep looking here at verse 20, the miracle was bring me a new jar, put salt in it. They brought it. He went to the spring, threw salt in it, and it was pure. Four parts to this miracle. Now stay with me because we ain't got to bald heads and, and to bears yet, but we're coming. Uh, salt is a symbol of the faithfulness of God's word. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant was called a covenant of salt. God will never, ever forget his nation. And whenever Israel would offer sacrifice, God said, salt shall be in your sacrifices. Uh, let your, your speech always be with grace seasoned as it were with salt. Salt makes things, it brings out what is in something. You ever tried to eat an egg without salt? It's like eating your bread without your gluten. You know, you just can't do it. Don't email me, okay? And so salt, the salt of the earth makes you hungry for things. And also you can preserve with salt. That's why back in the Middle Ages, you paid men 
with salt. And that's where the statement came. He ain't worth his salt. As a matter of fact, you know where the word salary, S-A-L-A-R-Y comes from? Comes from, did I spell that right? Yeah, it comes from salt. You paid him with salt. And so salt is a precious thing. Uh, salt is a, uh, a delightful thing, as a matter of fact. Uh, whenever Columbus sailed the ocean blue and all those guys were trying to go to the west, they were trying to find something. They were trying to find Manny Desai. Let me explain that, man. They were trying to find India, okay? Because that's where they got all these spices and it would spice things up. They couldn't go to the east to get them because you ran into the Turks. So you went to the west because Columbus said, all right, I'm telling you, it's right around the corner, just over the horizon. We can go get in the back door at India and China and we can get all the salt we want. And uh, that's why Winston Churchill once said that uh, the first communist was Columbus. Said he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know where he was when he got there. And he did it on everybody else's money. All right. So I'll leave it right there. But he got there and said, hey, look at all these Indians. And they all went, really? I'd have swore this was North America. So that's why we did it, to get some salt. Okay. Well, I want you to take salt, which is a symbol of the word of God. You are the salt of the earth. Whenever you live out your Bible and you love God and you love your neighbor, you make it a kinder, gentler place. Amen. Yeah. Abraham told his wife to lie. He said, there's no fear of God in this place. It's dangerous. Well, you take salt and you put it in a vessel, not just a vessel. You put it in a new earthen vessel. It's not gold or silver, prestigious. It's a common vessel. The apostle Paul said, this treasure of the gospel, we have in earthen vessels that the surpassing glory may not be of ourselves, but of God. And so you put salt, but it's not just an earthen vessel. It's a, hang on here. It is a, where does it say new? 20, there it is. Bring me a new jar. We're gonna put it in new people. We're not just gonna try to do a quick fix on our problems. We've gotta have a total cancel culture of this sin and a return to the God of Abraham. And so I need a new man with old truth. You don't have to be handsome and eloquent, but you've got to be new. I want a new man. Every man in Christ is a new creation. We are his workmanship. So I've got to have a new vessel and I've got to have old truth. Don't bring me Socrates. Don't bring me Plato, Aristotle, or Aquinas. I need Genesis and I need Exodus and I need John and Romans. You bring to me the truth. Whenever Martin Luther discovered the saving truth of Romans, he began to teach in his classes and a strange things happened at Wittenberg. Students began to attend. It was unheard of. And pretty soon he started doing chapels in Wittenberg and they couldn't fit the people in. Everybody wanted to hear what would happen when this old priest went and explained. Everybody showed up. 
And so give me old truth in a new jar and I want you to go to the spring. Don't go out in the lands out here and try to do a little, uh, you know, uh, clever farming techniques. That's not going to fix it. You've got to go to the spring. The Bible says, guard your heart, my son, for from it come the springs of life. The most important thing about you or any culture is what they think about God. That's going to influence everything. And so I want old truth and a new vessel. And I want you to go to the spring and I want you to go to the heart and put it in that heart. And there we're going to have in verse 21, uh, I have purified or literally, you know what the text says? The Hebrew says, I have healed these waters. Sound familiar? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and confess their sins, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and I will heal their land and forgive their sins. Do we need a little healing around there? Yeah. Teresa likes to watch the news. I say, turn it off. Give me gun smoke. <laughs> Matt Dillon will get justice. Okay. And so I have healed these waters, not just now, but there shall not be death or unfruitfulness any longer. Does this sound familiar? This happened to you. Somebody came to you that was a new earthen vessel. They weren't that splendid in themselves, but they were different from anything you have seen. Amen. They were different and you looked at them and they told you something. They didn't talk to you about Plato, Aristotle, or Socrates. They talk to you about God, Genesis, Israel, the promises, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection. They talked about Christmas and Easter. They went back to the beginning and they talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? You betcha. And you know what? You opened up your heart like they did the stable for Jesus. And he came into your life and God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, we now got born again. And so that's what happened to you. That's what happened to me at North Texas. A guy showed up, an English teacher from Irving talking to my roommate and I listened to him and I said, I have never heard nothing like that. I had not heard the name of God spoken in a good sense in our athletic norm. Okay. But I heard it. And I just looked at him and my roommate tried to sick him on somebody else. He said, this is Tom. And so he turned and I listened to him and he talked to my roomie about Jesus and Calvary and the resurrection and he's alive and he can come into your heart. And when he said that, that hit me. You just can't give intellectual assent. You and God have to have a come to Jesus meeting. You gotta make a call on this. And I did. And uh, so did you. Amen. You had some new jar came to you. I don't know who it was. And he told you something you'd never heard. And you trusted it with your heart. And here you are to this day. Well, 
Now, what would you think is going to happen at the capital of the north, Bethel? Bethel means the house of God. It used to be a place where, uh, you remember uh, Jacob, saw Jacob's ladder, the angels of God coming in and take care of him. He said, this is, a, this is the house of God. I didn't know it, named it Bethel. Whenever now they have taken over Bethel, that's like somebody overthrowing the uh, Lincoln Monument. That's like somebody overthrowing the Washington Monument. They go to the essence of our country. They had taken Bethel and turned it into, as the prophet Amos said, Beth Haven, that means the house of evil. And so what would you think they will be doing in Bethel? Don't look, don't you be reading your Bible. What do you think Bethel will say after this city of the palms became an eyesore and all of a sudden there's fruitfulness in it? After the rumor that Elijah, God left a, a miracle in Elijah's life so that everybody could think about it. He got visibly taken up into glory. The only other guy that happened to was Enoch right before the flood to let everybody know, I'm serious about this. And it happened with Jesus, so everybody would know, I'm serious about this. And so Elijah was taken up into glory, and everybody knew that. It was the supernatural, okay? And now here is life from the dead. Wow. What do you think they'll do? Well, they're going to have a ticker tape parade for Elisha, obviously, because there's nothing a culture would rather do than to turn from the generational sin of their parents and embrace a holy God that calls them to repentance, right? One historian said, men will not embrace a system that condemns them. That's why it's no problem becoming a Buddhist or a Muslim or anything else. You don't have to repent of nothing. You just brace something esoteric. Judaism, you gotta get circumcised. You gotta become a Jew. Christianity, you repent and you say, I've got to die and be cleansed. What do we call that? Baptism. Whether it be literal or figurative and symbolic in your own heart, you got to be baptized. You got to die. And so with that, verse 22, the waters have been healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, the word of God gave life incidentally. Does this sound familiar? Israel comes when they're out of water. They're on the wilderness journey. They're coming into the land and they encounter springs of water. The problem is they're poisoned. And they, uh, they called them a name, Merah, poisoned. We get the word myrrh. Tell you what's interesting. If you want to name a girl after it, you get the name Mary or Miriam. That's why Christ came from Mary, from bitterness. And so the, the, you couldn't drink from them. And God said, I'm going to teach you something. He said, everybody circle up right here around Moses. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Moses, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have water, but it's going to have to be changed. And it says God showed Moses a tree. I want you to cut the tree down. Here's a living thing. 
and here's a pool of dead stuff. I want you to cut the tree down and the living thing will die. There'll be death at the tree. That sounds familiar. The tree is going to die. And then I want you to take this living tree that died and you throw it into the marrow. Incidentally, it seems like I say that a lot, you know. Incidentally, the word um, God showed him a tree is the first time in the Bible the word Torah occurs. God instructed him. That's what the Torah is. God instructed him. He Torahed him to the tree because he was about to give him the essence and the penultimate idea of the Torah and the word of God. You take this tree and throw it in and he does. Now, what would you think? When you take a tree, cut it down and throw it into arsenic, would you think that the tree will make the arsenic pure? No, it won't. Everything will get corrupt, but it doesn't. Death brings life. It's a miracle. And now it's now pure. And God said, everybody circle up. I'm going to give you a lesson. Would y'all quit drinking for about two seconds? Okay. I'm going to give you a lesson. You follow after the ways of Egypt. And I'm going to put the curses on you that I put on Egypt. What was it like to drink from the Nile River in the book of Exodus? It was like blood. God said, you follow Egypt and you get death. You follow my law because in a couple of chapters, we're going to come to Sinai and God's going to give the law. You follow my Torah and it's going to be life. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is the law of the Lord. And in it, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in the season. Whatever it does, he prospers. Isn't that something? And so that's a freebie too. Okay. Verse 23, you would think Bethel would rejoice, but he went from there to Bethel. He's going to continue here, the ministry of Elijah to the king and his wife. He's going to continue. And he goes to Bethel. And as he is going up, by the way, young lads, these are not kids. These are Y-U-T-E-S, youths, okay? These are young men. This is the new generation that has been raised under Jeroboam, and uh, Basha and all of these rancid individuals up to Ahab. Here comes young men. They came out from the city. He's greeted by a gang. They're against the authority of God. We would call them Antifa, okay? Anti-fascist, we don't like authority. And so here we got Antifa. And he goes to Bethel, the house of God. And as he's going up, by the way, young lads come out from the city and they mocked him and said, go up, you bald head. When they said, go up, the term go up is used twice in the immediate context. One is that he was going up to the capital to state his truth. 
the young guys came out and they met him coming into the city. And they said, preach on, fool. They hold his authority in contempt. You have no business speaking here. When you get home, look at the end product of the North and go to a prophet that wrote before the nation got destroyed. Read the prophet Amos. And in Amos 7, you're gonna have a Southern shepherd face to face with a Northern king. And the king's false prophet is going to say to Amos, go to Judah and do your prophesying, you seer, because this is the capital and we don't need your kind around here. And uh, Amos said, I am not a prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet, but God took me from following the herd and he said, preach, and I'm gonna tell you what the truth is. You're gonna die in captivity. And so this problem with the capital continues with cancel culture and a new generation of idiots. Is there any truth to this? Yeah. Well, in verse 23, they mocked his authority and also Elijah had gone up into heaven. They say, go up, you bald head. There's a double entendre here. We don't believe in Elijah and we don't believe that you are a prophet of God. And so do your preaching somewhere else. And secondly, we don't believe all this song and dance about the supernatural. We don't believe in your virgin birth. We don't believe in the Trinity. We don't believe in the Bible. We don't believe in creation. We don't believe in male and female sexuality and gender. We don't believe any of that. We're going to impose our will and we're going to get rid of our past and we're going to bring in the new. Well, you're dying of thirst. That's okay because we're still going to bring it in. But God has brought things different. I don't care. But we were founded on this. I don't care. The guys we got rid of were the guys that you're espousing. I don't care about that either. They're very rational men. And so they went up and they mocked him. And they said, go up, you bald head. Bald head is, <laughs> it's not mocking his bald head. There's a, one of my favorite texts is from Leviticus. If any man is bald, he is clean. I love that text. Right. You're telling me <laughs> he's clean. Right. Uh, it was not that they were mocking his baldness. Generally, who do you associate baldness with? Young men, old men. They were mocking his generation. It would be like, I remember one time Teresa and I went to the junior high group to talk to him years ago. And Whenever you talk to young people, and not the young people at our church, they're all phenomenally mature. But when you, a lot of times you talk to young people, do you ever get the, the feeling that uh, they know it all at 17? You know, hey, daddy-o. Yeah. And so Teresa and I went and spoke to them. And of course, you know, they're listening like this. Well, 
They did it to the wrong person. Not me. I'm a nice guy. But Teresa was there. And I was watching her. And I watched some little girl about six rows out kind of went. And I thought, oh, God. And Teresa stopped and just put that stink eye on her. Let me tell you something right now. And I forget the rest of it. <laughs> and so they're mocking the old guy. Is our country mocking the bald heads? They are. You got nothing to say to me anymore. As a matter of fact, I'll make you a prophecy. That we're, what we have seen in Europe is beginning to happen here. In Europe, it's like 1% of the population goes to church and they're all over about 80. The young are too cool for school, all right, because they're untested. It, you can be so bold about truth when you hadn't lived it. So, and as, as you'll start to see in our culture, more and more evangelicals populated by those 60 and up, the young have been schooled in atheism. Amen? I don't believe I'm being Jerry Falwinian right here. I'm just being true. They've been schooled in atheism. The government, now the military, don't try to send your kid to the army to mature him. Sorry, it ain't gonna happen. Don't try to put him on the police horse to make him a good guy. He can't wear his cross but he will have to wear a rainbow. That happened in Denton, Texas. And so don't send him to Harvard. Don't send him to Yale. Send him to TCU in the next week. Okay. <laughs> but you be careful. Uh, if you send him to Wall Street, be careful. Sure don't send him to LA or Nashville. So wherever you put him, He's going to get schooled in the hatred of God. And they will mock you. Go up. You got something to say to me? Go up. You believe in the supernatural? You bald head. I don't like you. Incidentally, you know what today is today? It is the 250th anniversary of the writing of Amazing Grace by John Newton. He wrote it 250 years ago today. We don't even know it, and we ain't going to sing it. Amazing Greece. That's what we think of it. So they came up. So are y'all with me so far? Does this look like it was written last week? Yeah. So what do you do? Do you do like Teresa? Do you behead them right there? I said to her, that's why God didn't make you a man. What do you do? In verse 24, it says what? He looked behind him. Y'all ever remember Christ saying something like this? Get thee behind me. Be gone, Satan. Depart from me, ye doers of wickedness, that I may keep the law. And so he looked behind him. You don't stop and jaw with them. You keep on walking. You dig? You keep on walking. You don't stop, 
You don't hesitate. You don't falter. I remember when I was a young Christian, I heard a guy named Bob Horner tell a story at a crusade conference that there was a guy that became a Christian over in, New, over in, the, in England and he got mocked. And they said to him, you believe the Bible is true? He said, yes, I do. You believe Jonah is true? Yes, I do. You believe that Jonah got swallowed by a whale? Yes, I do. How do you know that? The Bible says, how do you know it's true? It may be false. You don't know. How are you going to know? He said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll find Jonah and I'll ask him. He said, what if when you get to heaven, Jonah ain't there? He said, then you ask him. That's called walking on. And so he looked behind him and you just keep on walking. Uh, you stay your course. You don't move. Uh, see, we've got the thing they don't have. Like that guy in John 9, I was blind and now I see. How can a man restore the eyes of those who are blind? I don't know, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. He did this on the Sabbath. How can you say that a man can do this on the Sabbath? I don't know, but I do know this. I was blind and now I see. Like the Welshman who was an alcoholic and uh, people chided him. He got converted. He said, you're telling me you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. You believe that he turned water into wine? He said, yes, I do. He said, did you ever see it? He said, I don't know. But in my case, he turned whiskey into furniture. <laughs> Meaning he fixed me and he fixed my home. And so you just keep walking on. And then in verse 24, the bears. <laughs> he looked behind them and he saw them. And he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now, what that doesn't mean is you say, you sorry sack of, no, that's cussing somebody. You don't do that. Um, listen to this verse. You ready? If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times. Leviticus 26. And I will loose among you the beast of the field which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads are deserted. You're going to live in fear of violence if you do this. So the bears, here they come. God said, and here they come. Two female bears. Why do you not want to confront a female bear? Because what's she thinking about? Her babies. The book of Hosea says, I will rip open your chest, O Israel, like a bear in search of her cubs. Question, who were the dangerous people here to the children? Those 42 that are mocking God. Who's the child? Elisha. God protects him. And so you walk on because God is there to protect. Jericho gives life. Bethel gives death. You receive the word, there is life. You reject it and you better run for your life. Well, in verse 24, uh, incidentally, there is a guy in the Old Testament during the ministry of Elisha you don't see great conversions. 
They saw, just like John the Baptist came preaching wrath, they blew him off. Christ came with mercy. Have we blown him off? We have. You know, the largest church in Israel is only 300 people. That's all it is. But there was a person as Elisha's ministry that turned with open arms and received him. He was a leper and he was healed. Who was it? Naaman, the Syrian. He's a centurion, the symbol of, of Assyrian, Assyrian power. In the days of Christ, Israel rejected the gospel of Peter and Paul. But there was a guy who received it and brought all of his friends to hear it. He was Cornelius the centurion. It's interesting, but God gives, gets typical enemies. Guess who would coordinate to Naaman? You. The Gentiles believed. Well, in verse 25, he went from there to Mount Carmel, where Elijah began his ministry and then returned to Samaria to deal with Bethel. I think he went to Carmel like you and I will go to a, a godly, holy place and just sit there. We were in Martin Luther's church in Wittenberg. We were in Ulrich Zwingli's in Zurich. And we just sat there. We were at John Calvin's church when we did our tour. And I remember just sitting there and thinking what those walls had heard. And so it's like Elijah connects himself. The youth don't like him. The old politicians don't like him. But who likes him? Elijah and God. Is that amen? That's all you need. He connects with his past. That's why I love to read church history because I look at my old heroes. The Bible says about uh, the Thessalonians, says this. Um, oh, it was real good yesterday. You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea, for you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your enemies, the Jews, as they did from the Gentiles. Even as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Christ, the prophets, Paul, Thessalonians. Prophets, Christ, Paul, Thessalonians, us. you, us. We follow in a holy line. Count it all joy whenever you endure all kind of evil against you falsely for the name of the Son of Man. Rejoice and be great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You enter into a holy line. Number of years ago, I had a fellow in our church, John Weidler, working with international students. He brought a Chinese, middle-aged Chinese guy to me. said, I want you to meet him. And he said, this kid, when he was a kid, or this man, his father, when he was a kid, he was taught in China by the missionary Eric Little. You with me? As in chariots of fire, Eric Little. He was taught by Eric Little. 
And this Chinese fellow says, I'm glad to meet you. And he said, I wonder if you could explain something. And I said, sure. My father was a student of Mr. Little in chemistry. And he presented to Mr. Little a formula in chemistry. And Mr. Little said something to him that he could not understand. But he said, in our country, you don't want to lose face. And so he just nodded. I said, well, what did he say? He said, it's always bothered my family. And I said, well, what was it? He said, Mr. Little looked at the formula and said to my father, this is too good to be true. That American idiom, English idiom, this is too good to be true. Do you all know what that means? Sure you do. That means that is so fantastic. It is so phantasmagorical that it transcends even my ability to comprehend. That is too good to be true. Well, he didn't understand it. And so that had been weighing on him since 1943. And now he comes to me in the late 90s, 1990. And I said, let me tell you what that means. Mr. Little was saying that that formula that your father came up with was so good, was so fantastic, was so brilliant, was so ingenious that he had never seen anything like it in his entire mortal life. And he said to your father, that is the greatest thing and you are the greatest chemist that I have ever seen. And he went, <laughs> he smiled so big and I felt kind of a tingle. Eric Little has always been one of my heroes. And I, the Edinburgh Flyer, Eric Little. And I was able to do something for my old buddy, Eric Little. He and I stood together on something. It's like the day I was asked to do a funeral for Hudson Taylor IV, the great-grandfather of the great missionary. I was able to help him out just doing something for him. And so when we stand, you stand in the long gray line of greatness. Amen. Loosman, where are you? Get up here and sing. From Hazlitt, Texas, Loosman Valverde. Father in heaven, thank you for this uh, New Year's Day. And we'll start our year uh, as Elisha started his ministry, as David said, I would rather uh, serve in the temple of God than I would to, to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to serve or rather to sit and feast in the house of wicked men. And so if we are refused entrance into a deluded day, we shall delight in the communion of Jesus. And we'll thank you in his precious name. Amen.